don't change our behaviour, by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So do we want a system of anarchy? And that's what we probably have at the moment. And they estimate that there's about 40.3 million people in some form of modern slavery. There is no single industry not touched by this issue. Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. There's been a shift in thinking about who counts as a terrorist and there are currently terrorist laws being used against white nationalists. Where people's lives are being destroyed, that to me is enough to say something needs to be done here. Welcome back to What Happens Next. If you're joining us for the first time, this is something of a sliding doors podcast. For each topic we tackle, we start by considering what the future will look like if we don't make change. Then we consider how things could look if we do. And finally, we investigate how you can create the future you want. This is the first episode on a brand new topic, a three-part series looking at modern slavery. And you might be surprised to learn that slavery isn't something relegated to the past. It's happening today and it's happening right under our noses. And in fact, there are more people trapped in slavery now than at any other time in human history. Criminologist Dr Bodine Edwards joins us to talk about what the future could look like if we don't tackle the scourge of modern slavery. My name is Bodine Edwards and I am a lecturer with Monash University. I am a criminologist by trade and have spent the better part of the last 10 years looking specifically at the experience of governments in responding to modern slavery in South and Southeast Asia. Welcome, Dr. Bo Hedwards. Modern slavery, what is it and how is it different to traditional slavery? So modern slavery is essentially a catch-all phrase for a range of different exploitative practices, which is human trafficking, forced labour, bonded labour and debt bondage, forced marriage. But each of those different terms have their own specific definitions. Right. But basically we've been using this term now in, a, in quite a powerful way because it's been used to mobilise what is essentially this, this new wave of the, the modern slavery movement. And it varies depending on what you're talking about. So when we talk about modern slavery, when I say it, you know, over the next um, little while, I'm going to be using it to describe this broad range of exploitative practices. But it's really important to remember that it does actually capture very, very mm. specific, very different types of practices that do intersect in different ways. Mm. They're different for a reason. Of course. So, for example, someone being trapped into forced marriage has a different experience to a child who sent down a mine. They're Absolutely. Both awful, but different and need to be considered and, and assisted differently. Exactly. And I, I think that's the really important part there around why definitions matter is the, the definition ultimately shapes the way that we then respond. In an advocacy sense, you know, it's, it's incredibly powerful and we're seeing how powerful that is now because we're seeing the Modern Slavery Act in Australia and the UK and it's mobilising this a whole new wave of energy and this whole new anti-slavery movement that is really bringing business on board in a much more substantive way. Traditionally, slavery was one person owns another person. Is there still that concept of ownership of a person in modern slavery? I, I mean, the answer is yes. Um, the traditional terminology still applies. I think what has changed is the context in which they are, they are, they are sold and the ways in which they are sold. Um, and ultimately, another comparison is the price. <laughs> um, so back in, back in the day, the transatlantic slave trade saw prices quite high. It was expensive to, to own someone, so it was also a sign of wealth. Whereas now, humans 
uh, have been we've been cheapened, um, and it, it's it's kind of more focused on the labour side of it. So it's much cheaper to buy and sell someone. So it's not necessarily new, but the ways that we are selling people and the cost for which we are selling people is what has changed. Mm. It's much more innovative. It's very creative, um, and it's harder to identify. I mean, the BBC recently in Kuwait recently released. Um, their investigation into the for sale platform, um, and which is kind of equivalent to, I mean, they referred to it as Tinder. So it's Tinder for maids. Yeah, absolutely. So they were using this app, which was hosted by Apple and Google. Um, You download it, you swipe through pictures of domestic workers and you can sort by age, you can sort by ethnicity, you can you can even sort by price. But how is that slavery as opposed to just employing them as maids? What what made that slavery? So it would be a very important thing and there the, needs, I mean the BBC article kind of didn't go into a lot of detail about the situations that the workers had experienced but there is a lot of research and, and we know very well that domestic workers, particularly throughout the Middle East and in parts of Europe, well I mean globally but predominantly in those areas, domestic workers face very severe forms of exploitation. And I think that is often facilitated by the lack of protection. Um, It's in the home. It's incredibly hard to identify. It's incredibly hard to get out. You would have to do a a case-by-case to see what was happening behind the images on that app to understand what their experience of employment had been. But essentially, you could expect that there would be a, a very large number of people on that app that would be being shifted from worker uh, from employer to employer in very exploitative conditions. What sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of modern slavery worldwide? So the most recent estimates were released Uh, 2018, by the International Labour Organisation in collaboration with the Walk Free Foundation and the International Organisation for Migration. And they estimate that there's about 40.3 million people in some form of modern slavery. That would have to be the largest number on record of slavery. Well, actually, it's not, Um, which is why I love the discussion about numbers. So in 2016, the Walk Free Foundation estimated that there were 45.8 million, I I think is what the estimate was. So, I mean, we've actually... Yeah, two million fewer. We've actually, we've, technically, we've dropped. Unfortunately, that does not mean that we have been effective in reducing the number of people in these types of conditions. It just means we're getting better at counting mm-hmm. and we're getting better at accounting for what this looks like and we're getting better at finding those, those people, basically. And I think, you know, there, there's a lot of criticism around the way that we estimate the number of people in slavery reporting is notoriously hard. It's um, it's inconsistent. People make it hard for people to report these situations. So, of course, it's not being recorded. So the estimate methodologies are creative. Um, they're innovative and we're trying to bring in different ways of counting to try and get a better picture of what is actually happening. mentioned that there was the app uh, mm. in a country like Kuwait. And so it might be easy for someone like me to sit here and go, oh, that's so awful. Mm. But of course, in Australia, mm. I would never, you know, have anything to do with that. But is that accurate? No, it's not. And I mean, regardless of the numbers and, you know, there's there's all these different estimates. I think when you actually just walk away from the numbers, 
you can basically say that there are very few countries, if any countries, that do not experience or do not have an underbelly of this kind of, this kind of thing happening. What would it look like in a country like Australia? So there's been a lot of research that is, is trying to explore exactly what that looks like in Australia. Um, coming out of Monash, Associate Professor Marie Seagrave has been doing a lot of work on what this looks like in the agricultural sector. Um, it could look like migrant workers coming into Australia thinking that they're going to be in a position to earn a better wage than what they would at home. They're going out into remote and rural parts of Australia where they're not getting paid, their passports are being taken um, and they have no way home. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that passport being removed is quite a significant step in the slavery transition yes. from slay, like worker, willing worker to slavery Absolutely. in every situation. Absolutely. And it's really important to note that when we talk about... So slavery is a, slavery's a big word um, and it is the most severe form of exploitation. So when we talk about exploitation in the context of Australia and, and particularly in this, this context, there's a spectrum of exploitative behaviours that can happen and it's important not to conflate slavery with not being paid mm. or being underpaid or... You know, having your passport taken doesn't necessarily mean that you are in a situation of slavery. So it's really important, and and again, this goes back to my little gripe with definitions, is we need to make sure that we're not saying that every migrant worker that goes out into the agricultural sector in Australia is going to end up in a situation of slavery or forced labour. We need to look at it across that spectrum. And once all those indicators kind of come together, that's when we can start looking at what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say, going back to your question, is it is absolutely happening here. Um, the agricultural sector is just one example. Domestic work. I mean, the sex industry is is one industry. I mean, that gets a lot of attention, but there was, a, there was recognition a long time ago that that is not the only sector. And I think it's just a really important point to make that forced labour happens everywhere. Um, once you move out of Australia into, into other sort of more middle to higher income countries, again, you're looking at you're looking at domestic workers, you're looking at the construction sector, manufacturing, all of these places that you may not necessarily think of as having slavery will ultimately have something. Which makes me think that it's not just about, um, you know, the people, the forced labourer in the vegetable fields mm. or in the sex industry, mm. but it it's someone like me as a consumer mm. inadvertently buying XYZ that is facilitating perhaps an overseas mm. slave trade. Yes. Is, is that – what would be the worst industries for that sort of thing? Look, it, that's a really – it's a really hard question because there is no single industry not touched by this issue. Mm. Um, supply chains are inherently complex and the way that that evolved with globalisation meant that there more and more tiers were introduced to supply chain, so it actually became a lot easier to hide <laughs> these different experiences. But – you know, the really good example to just kind of track what that could look like is the T-shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, I buy a T-shirt at my favourite brand, um, but then when you break down what how that T-shirt was made, you've got your first port of call is usually cotton. So cotton for a very long time was sourced primarily from Uzbekistan, which has one of the most well-established, well-known government-sanctioned forced labour systems that harvests the cotton it was wasn't until 2012 that they actually stopped taking children under the age of 16 out of school Mm. to pick the cotton to then export um so i mean that's that's your cotton but then you take your cotton and it has to be spun into the mill then you go into your 
your garment factories. And I mean, the, the collapse of Rana Plaza really drew attention to the working conditions of garment factory workers. Right. That was in Bangladesh. That was in Bangladesh. Where there were many deaths. Absolutely. I mean, that drew attention to a lot of issues around worker safety and worker rights, but it did draw attention to the, the industry. Absolutely. It drew attention to the industry. And I, I will say the fashion industry has been pretty good in responding. Mm-hmm. Um, there are brands now that will promote that they do not source cotton from Uzbekistan. But in saying that, is in the, the supply chain from point A to point B is so complex and currently borderline impossible to track. So, But, I mean, consumers are demanding it. So ultimately, they're going to have to continue to try and work out how they can say, I didn't, our, our, my T-shirt isn't built, made from cotton, yeah. harvested by children in Uzbekistan. Um, so, they, I mean, you've got all of these different supply chains that ultimately land in your favourite store in Australia that you buy. There's no way around it at this point. Mm. Um, it is going to touch all of the products that we buy, food, clothing, computers, phones. I mean, if you look at your phone, a lot of the minerals that come from phones are mined by children throughout Africa. So if things just continue on in this track, are we just going to become more and more reliant on a slave trade, a modern slave trade that most of us turn a blind eye to. Can can consumer society, which pretty much the whole world now mm-hmm. is based on, can it actually survive without it? I don't think it's, – it's no longer a question of if businesses respond to this issue. It's now just a question of when and how. Um, businesses – it's not sustainable – Basically. Slavery is not sustainable. Slavery is not sustainable. Why not? Because the consumer is becoming more aware. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But let me push back on that, though. mm. People love a $3 T-shirt at the big, cheap department store. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that we're there yet. There is – we're seeing change and change is happening, but there is a lot of research that will now show that it is financially – or it's just bad business to have slavery in your supply chains – um, consumers are, we're seeing a shift away from the fast fashion. We're seeing movements like the fashion revolution, the cotton campaign, um, all these different movements that are raising the awareness of your everyday consumer about the risks of fast fashion and what that means for what, what your $3 shirt means, basically. There will always be an element of it is cheaper, therefore I will continue to buy that. But I do think we are going to get to a position where businesses may have to take a, a knock to their profit margins for a while to continue to provide that, um, but we're going to have to get smarter about how we make sure that the workers are receiving a living wage. I think it's it's not about whether or not they will, it's just about how. Mm. Um, I don't think, you know, there's a, a beautiful quote that is, is plastered on most anti-slavery organisation walls by William Wilberforce. But you can decide not to act, but you can never again say that you didn't know. Mm. And I think we're there. So you think most Australians or, you know, people living in Western yep. countries can say, we can't say we don't know anymore? I don't think so. Mm. I mean, there would be very few people that had never heard the term sweatshop. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they translate that into the practice of modern slavery is a different thing. So I think there's a gap, but there's a gap between 
knowing and acting here at the moment. I think yeah. that's kind of where we are at the well, moment. Well, it's an inconvenient truth. Absolutely. It is a nice thing to get a $3 T-shirt. Yes. Yes. Um, but no, I, I mean, whether or not there are still some historical associations with the term slavery. Mm-hmm. And I think I was pretty smart on the anti-slavery movement to adopt this term and putting this, you know, the, the modern slavery as, as the term, as the defining term for this movement is because people then kind of think, hang on, well, it must be different too what we knew in the 16, 17, 1800s. Um, and I think there's probably maybe a bit of still an association with that form of slavery. But again, like, you know, as I mentioned, I don't think the sale and exploitation of people has never stopped. It's just society has become more creative mm. with the way that they do it. Well, it's become less palatable. So the yes. problem is now it's just more covered up. Exactly. That's exactly right. And there are all types, you know, there are incredibly sophisticated ways that that is happening um, and there is a, an element, I think, of, of trying to keep up with that and trying to catch the ways that this is happening. You know, Instagram, you know, like Instagram, Apple, Google, all of those, all of those platforms that we use and enjoy have now been kind of perverted into using it for the sale of people. It was never, it was never established for that purpose, but here it is being used that way. So I think there's... There is a, a really we're at an interesting point in time now where there is an element of catch up from society that do find it morally apprehensible to those that see the sale and exploitation of people as still an incredibly profitable business. Is it possible that we're heading towards a dystopian future of modern slavery? There's so many slaves, forty three million odd. Are we heading in a really scary direction? We are. We absolutely are. I think there are there is an opportunity here for people to exploit people in really horrific ways that is far more harder is is much harder to detect. Um, it's much harder to get them out, and it will ultimately be much harder to them bring them back into society and and make sure that they don't fall victim to some of these practices again. But it's already happening. You know, we're seeing so, the use of technology to exploit and transfer people already. So in some ways we're already living the dystopian future. I think we're future. here. We are, we are absolutely at that dystopian future where we are seeing incredibly sophisticated ways to continue that historical exploitation of people that we saw in the, tra- in the transatlantic slave trade. We're just seeing it in a far more pervasive way than we possibly would never have imagined there. So we're here. So I don't think we're at a point where we can't change. We are changing, but we're also at a point where we have to because this is already happening. Perhaps part of the success of the abolition of the traditional slavery movement is that people had slaves living among them. They could look out their window and see how slaves were being treated and you can't turn away from that. Whereas I think as you said, we're starting to learn about the clothing industry, for example, because of a few shocking examples. But take, for example, the fishing industry. Very few people, maybe tell people what is the story with the fishing industry because I think very few people realise what uh, what role slavery plays in the fish that many of us buy at the supermarket deli. Absolutely. So that was uh, a couple of years ago now where it was essentially found that Workers were being recruited from Myanmar, from Cambodia and all around South and Southeast Asia to go and work in the Thai fishing industry. 
again, there's the promises of good wages, of good working conditions and the ability to support your family at home. So they, they, take, they take the job. Um, it was then found that they were taken out onto the fishing trawlers where they were kept for months. They were physically, emotionally abused for months on end. They were not fed well. They were just the working conditions were horrific to the point where there were also stories that came out of that, that broader investigation where when the workers were you know, that unwell that they couldn't work, they were just essentially thrown overboard. Mm. Um, so that, I mean, that situation was was pretty horrific um, and it kind of goes back to that point that, you know, those journalists didn't care that they didn't, they might not have met the, the definition of trafficking, but the conditions were, were poor enough that that had to be reported on. And I think there's a point here to also be made about the role of survivors. We don't, we don't see them, you know, they're not in our homes that, well, you know, domestic workers are and, and that's a whole different complicated situation but you know there's there's work happening in the UK at the moment that's actually bringing survivors to the table you know we have to humanize this for people to understand or to see it like you know you're mentioning we we don't see it mm. well then let's stop the UN talking about it get the survivors um mm. to the table get them leading this movement because they are the human face of it they are the ones that can speak to it um, I think there is, a, there is a really important role and I think that's probably something that does need to happen more is we need more of that voice, of that human element to really drive that change. I mean, it's hard to look away when, when there's someone there talking to you. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's starting. It, it's, it's happening. It's just a matter of providing the platform for it. Dr. Bo Edwards, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Susan. As scary as all that sounds, there is hope. In our next episode, we meet a remarkable group of young women who are working to create a different and more positive future in the area of modern slavery. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Bodine Edwards, and thanks for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of What Happens Next.